1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, Episode 73. In this episode, I will discuss ways in which you can measure your financial security. What are some of the tools available to use as a barometer to ensure you're heading in the right track when it comes to your personal finances? Now, just like any other plan in life, you need to make sure that whatever you're doing in your own personal finances is gonna be beneficial in the long run and rather than having to wait you know, 10, 20 years and find out that what you've been doing is completely wrong. So in this episode, we'll go into detail about some of the tools that you can use to make sure that you're on the right track. Now, for those of you that are new to the channel, remember, the aim here is to educate, empower, and entertain. I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to my podcast episodes and make it with your own appropriate qualified advisors. If you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Here they are. Step one always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money straight off the top. That is your payment for the hard work that you do, in addition to your salary. Step two, invest that money. Ideally, something that you understand in or want to understand in. For me, I just invest in Vanguard ASX 300 index funds. So if you invest in ETFs, that's fine. If you invest in property because you understand it, that's fine. If you invest in bonds, that's fine. Whatever you do, don't keep it as cash, because remember, due to inflation, cash value is lower as we progress on into the future. Step three, reinvest dividends. What does that mean? Well, when you invest in assets, they produce an income, and that income must not be cashed out, must be reinvested into that asset or other assets so that That dividend income buys more assets and those assets produced more money. The power of compounding is very, very real. And if you didn't do that, then you end up with far less asset portfolio in 20, 30 or 40 years. Which brings me back to step four. Always do investing for the long term. 20, 30 or 40 years. Not five years, not seven years, not 10 years, not even 15 years. I'm recommending 20, 30 or 40 plus years. So if you're in year 11 or year 12 and you've just finished your high school and you're listening to my podcast, now is the time to get your finances in order. Get a part-time job and you don't need much money to get started and get those behaviours and get those principles down-packed so that by the time you get a real job, a higher paying job, which I hope that you do get, then you'll have everything set up so you don't have to actually worry about it in the long term. And lastly, my final step, always automate it. Have a systems approach, have a process involved, and make sure that your 20% after-tax money is automatically invested every single time. This way, you're less likely to make mistakes, you're less likely to forget, and it just happens in the background on a long-term basis, And over time, if you did this and applied these simple principles, you're likely to end up with more wealth than you ever imagined that you ever require. Now, remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life better. But most importantly, use it as a tool to make the people around you, their lives better. So in this current COVID crisis, if you see... You know, a local business struggling, then help them out. Buy them a gift card. Um, if you have a takeaway shop, um, and uh, sorry, if if there is a takeaway shop near the place that you live, get some takeaway. You don't have to eat the food. You can donate the food. Whatever it is, help people out. Because and remember, money is not a tool. Uh, sorry, money is a tool, um, and it's not going to make you happier. Now, before we head off to the main topic. I got asked recently this question by Anonymous, so thank you Anonymous for this question, and the question was quite simple, does your superannuation contribution, employer and employee, count towards the 20% of after-tax money which you've paid yourself? Now the short answer to that is no, I don't count superannuation at all when it comes to retirement, I don't count it at all when it comes to your 20% after-tax money that you've paid yourself. I consider super as a icing on the cake. It gets you from economy class to business class or business class to first class or first class to private jets, to use an airline al- um, analogy. So when I say 20% of your after-tax income, I mean it's on top of the mortgage debt that you've paid. It's on top of the superannuation that gets deducted um, because your employer pays 9.5% on gross income. And it also doesn't take into account any other debt payment that you've done as well. So paying off debt is not a saving and is not considered investing in my view. So paying off mortgage debt, yes, it reduces your mortgage and therefore it increases your net worth, in my view, does not count towards the 20%. So the 20% of after-tax income is strictly money that you take off the top in addition to super, in addition to any other debt payments? I hope this clarifies, and thank you, Anonymous, for this question. In this episode, the main topic will be to find out how you can measure your financial security, how do you know you're heading in the right direction? Now, Dave Ramsey explains this very, very well when it comes to championship sporting teams. Now, if you interview championship sporting teams and ask them how they managed to win that year, the answer is not going to be, We just took it easy and lived day by day and it magically happened. The answer is likely to be that we practiced and practiced and practiced, we had a game plan, we simulated and we executed the game plan. And when things didn't go our way, we picked up our errors early and corrected them. So you must have a financial plan just the same way that a championship team has a game plan to win the championship. And you must have a way to measure your progress during your journey of FI, that's financial independence. So, if you haven't listened to my FIRE episode, episode 21, where I discussed FIRE in detail, I discussed what it is and the various subtypes of FIRE. I think it's worthwhile going back and listening to that after this episode to clarify and consolidate your knowledge. So, why do we save? Why do we invest? And why do we pay off our debt? Why have financial independence? Well, there's four things. The first thing is it gives us choice. Okay. So if you don't have to worry about money or where the next income is going to come or how you're going to pay these bills, it gives you some choice. And what that means is, for example, in my personal life over the last six weeks, I've reduced my working hours. So that's provided me with choice because I've got other income coming in to supplement. So I'm not obligated to work the long hours that I used to work at. Um, So I still work fairly heavily, but not as much as I used to. So that's great. That's given me some choice in my personal life. And I use that spare time to spend time on this podcast channel, but also spend time with family and friends wherever that I can within the restrictions of social distancing, of course. Now, part B, financial independence. We do it because we want financial independence. And what does this mean? It just means, again, going back to choice, it gives you options, You may choose to retire early, you may not choose to retire early, it doesn't matter. But it gives you the choice and it gives you the options and that's what FI is all about. It's about you having control over what you want to do and not be a slave to debt or not be a slave to your employer. Part C, financial security. So having a game plan and having a savings plan, having an investment plan and paying off debt it gives you financial security. What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what's happened in the last six to eight weeks in Australia where there's a crisis which is unexpected in the form of COVID, there's loss of jobs, there's um, potential loss of life and there's potential loss, uh, sorry, potential trauma, okay, or injuries. So even if COVID didn't come, you need to be prepared and have a financial secure plan in the event that there's an unexpected crisis in your life. And that may come about from a social situation, from an economical point of view or financial health point of view, personal health point of view or other point of view. Okay, so you need to have some sort of game plan which enables you to have some financial security. And lastly, the peace of mind factor. It helps you sleep well at night. By saving, investing and reducing your debt, You can sleep well at night far better than the person that is hilted to the top with debt. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is true. Um, If you talk to people that are debt-free, they are far more carefree, they are far more relaxed, and they're far less worried about finances than the person that has a mortgage debt of $1 or $2 million, for example. So the last thing I want to do when I'm out to retire is to check my bank account to see if I have enough money to live for that week. So in order for this to happen, in order for us to have choice, financial independence, financial security, and peace of mind, you need to have a game plan and you need to measure your game plan against benchmarks to make sure you are headed in the right direction. So how often do you measure your financial security? Well, usually I tend to look at it yearly um, maybe on your birthday, on your anniversary or the 1st of Jan, whatever suits. Uh, it can be academic yearly, it can be financial yearly, it doesn't matter. Just reevaluate your finances. Now, I got through the basic steps in terms of the first 10 episodes um, and I bang on about it because I think it's really important and I feel it's really important for new listeners of this channel to listen to those in order to get your financial life in order. Looking at the past year, look at your plan, where you were, where you are now, and what steps have you achieved, and repeatedly do it yearly, that's a good strategy, that is your assessment, that is your game plan to make sure that you are sticking to the plan. Now invariably, some years you'll have good years, some years you'll have bad years. Many people are having a terrible 2020, no doubt. But you need to ensure that overall, the trajectory of your net worth is going up, the trajectory of your overall debt liabilities is coming down and the trajectory of your happiness, which is completely unrelated to how much money you have, is going up. Because what good is money if you're miserable? And what I've found over the last 10 years of my personal experience and research project, you can call it, is that the more automated your investing is, the more automated your saving is, the more likely you will stick to your plan And if you stick to your plan, you're more likely to end up more financially secure. So what are some of the measurements of financial security that you can use to measure how well you're doing compared to benchmarks? Let's go through them one by one. Number one, net worth. This is probably the gold standard in terms of whether or not you've made it. And it's often used, but it doesn't have to be be all end all, and does have a major flaw in its assessment. So let's discuss that in detail. Net worth is the sum of all of the asset value minus all of your liabilities you may have. And you should include your credit cards, which you may have, even if you don't owe anything in the credit card. Okay, because when you apply for a loan, they take that into account as well. So let's use a real example. Remember, if you've listened to my episodes, episode by episode, you remember the example that I use about the person that has a lemon business, okay? Lemon lemon stand business. Now, let's say that person has finished their university degree and now has a job and a family. They have a house worth $500,000. They have superannuation worth $100,000. They have cash sitting in the bank account worth $20,000. They have other investments totaling one hundred thousand dollars, and their car and household items are worth about fifty K. The combined asset value is seven hundred and seventy thousand dollars. That's pretty good. But now we need to take into account their liabilities. The house has a loan of about two hundred grand, their credit card, which is fully paid off, is worth five thousand, they have a personal loan of ten thousand, they don't have any hex debt, and their car loan is worth five thousand dollars they don't have any other debt or any other liabilities so their combined liabilities is two hundred and twenty thousand dollars so their total net worth is simply the total asset value which was seven hundred and seventy thousand minus the total debt which was two hundred and twenty thousand so the total net worth for them and their family is going to be five hundred and fifty thousand dollars Now, if they're in their 30s or 40s, this is actually quite good. But if they're in their 60s, then this is not enough to retire on. So net worth calculators have a major flaw in them. One, they don't take into account your age. And two, they don't take into account for the type of asset they may hold. It only accounts for value of assets and liabilities. For example, in this example, their car and their household items are likely to depreciate further over time unless they have growth assets like their home or super or share portfolio their net worth could actually go down if they took into account just the car and the personal household items and that's why net worth is a good indicator but it's not the best indicator in fact there is no one indicator that's going to be the best um, but uh, or maybe financial independence ratio which we'll talk about a bit later but net worth has to be part of your assessment when you're assessing how well or poorly you're doing in terms of financial security. So net worth is not be all end all. For example, you know, artificially in the last three months, all of our net worths have gone down because of the huge crash in the share market. There's been a 20, 30% reduction with a small recovery. They're all paper losses. So net worth has to be taken into account with a grain of salt. The second way of looking at your financial security and the barometer is your savings rate. Now, I bang on about this all the time. This is your pay-yourself money. There are two main ways to look at this. Savings rate with gross income and savings rate with net income. I don't use gross income because net income is reality, gross income is not. Okay? Therefore, I prefer to have a savings rate of at least 20% of your after-tax income. Now, if this is too much initially, start low and go slow, but you may ramp it up to 20%. I've found otherwise, it may not make it your worthwhile for retirement, but this doesn't mean you stop saving. It means it's still better than nothing, but achieving 20% of pay-yourself money seems to be the gold standard in my humble opinion. So, if your total household income is $5,000 per month after tax, then you must aim to save $1,000 out of that and invest it. Now, the question then becomes, what if my savings rate is higher? Great, this is even better. Now, I've had some months where my savings rates Um, has been as high as 70%. But mostly, I've tracked it to be on average around 20% of net income. And now it's pretty steady. I don't go below 20%. um, And I try not to go too much above 20% unless I've got some spare money lying around. But in the past, when I had almost no liabilities and no family and I was single, etc., I used to save pretty much all of my money up to 70% of my income was just going into investments or going into savings. The higher the savings rate for the long term, the more financial security you will have. Now, does that mean having a high savings rate is going to cause you to be miserable? It may. So you need to find the right balance to achieve the quickest way to financial independence while still enjoying the fruits of lifestyle. So it really depends on whether you want to go miserable and save 80-90% of your income or you're happy to save 20-30% of your income and still have a life. That's up to you. And that's not up to anyone to judge. Now, the third way of measuring your financial security is debt-to-income ratio. This is a common metric that lenders will take when analysing your financial health and to determine if you can afford to buy a home or an investment or not. There are again the gross income calculators and net income calculators. Now, I prefer to use net income debt, uh, sorry, net income debt-to-income calculators, which provides a more accurate perception. Net income for me is life, gross income is not. So the golden rule of thumb I have is do not borrow more than what you can afford. And this means buying a home should only cost you 30% or less of your net monthly income. So let's use an example. Again, if your monthly net income is $5,000 per month, that is after tax, you should not borrow for a home if it means your monthly mortgage repayment is going to be more than 30% of 5,000 which is 1500 bucks per month. This is a safe approach. Now, you may say, I can't afford to get any house for a mortgage payment of only $15 per month. Now, I sympathise with that. I think that's a valid point, um, especially in cities like Melbourne and Sydney. It's almost impossible to get a house with just a mortgage payment of 1500 bucks per month. But you should borrow less than what you can afford because the bank is going to give you more and more money than possibly what you can afford. Now, I'm also assuming in this calculation you don't have any other debt. I don't like debt. I think debt in general is bad. But I've done an episode about good debt and bad debt to give more perspective on this issue, which is episode 24. So if you're interested in that, go back and listen to that. Now, some calculators use a gold standard of gross income debt to income ratio of 30%. Um, This is all of debt, which is mortgage, investment debt, margin loans, credit cards, and consumer debt. I would find that even more aggressive. Um, And of course, debt to income ratio is not good enough to be the gold standard of your financial health. It is part of assessing your financial health, but it's not a gold standard. So if your debt is mainly in investments like mortgage or homes or investments such as shares, then it's not really that bad because you've potentially got an asset that appreciates in value and possibly even produces income. But if your 30% of your income is goes towards consumer debt, like credit cards, car loans, personal loans, then you're in major Mm, trouble. And that's why I think debt to income ratio um, has to be used with a grain of salt as well. So, the debt to income ratio doesn't take into account your type of debt held. So pay attention to the finer details when calculating this. So if you have a depreciating uh, asset that you've bought with debt, then uh, that's a bad thing. The fourth way of assessing your financial health is credit scores. Uh, I've talked about this extensively in episode 57 where I discussed this in detail. Um, the credit score is basically a rating by a national credit reporting agency to assess your credit worthiness. Basically, it's a score which assesses whether you're worthy to borrow money. In other words, if you have no debt and you've never borrowed money, you probably might not have a credit score. Now, again, if you want a credit score, you may need to borrow money. And guess what? This gives you a credit score. And to improve it, you need to pay off that money and then borrow again. And the cycle keeps going on and on and on. So, if you don't borrow money, you may not need or even have a credit score, which means some businesses think you're not actually credit worthy, which is ironic because if you have no debt and a high income, you're way more financially secure than the Jones down the road who's borrowing money to their neck and are down, you know, drowning in debt and probably have a good credit score. So, that's the biggest flaw with credit scores. So, the credit scores alone are not a great indicator of your financial security but is often used by other businesses when it comes to lending you money or to do business with you. So some well-known credit score and reporting agencies in Australia are Experian, Equifax, um, Illion formerly known as um, Dunn and Bradstreet um, and uh, of course um, uh, Ex- Equifax has been in the news for all the wrong reasons particularly with their uh, security issue and data breach issues but Let's face it, they have our data, so we hope they treat it with um, some respect and some security. But yeah, that's one of the reasons why credit scores might not be a great financial uh, health indicator because you might have a great credit score, but it just means you're just in debt and borrowing too much money and paying it off on time. Um, That doesn't really increase your net worth and that doesn't really increase your financial security depending on the type of debt that you borrow whether you're borrowing it for depreciating assets or borrowing it for appreciating assets. Now, the other way of measuring financial security, and I guess this is very relevant for today's COVID world, is emergency funds. So I've discussed this before quite a few times. Uh, There are two main types of emergency funds. One is the immediate emergency fund, which is $1,000. And the second one is a three to six months worth of emergency funds to cover your expenses. In my My sort of experience, I prefer you cover your income for three to six months, or if not 12 months, if possible, rather than just cover expenses. Now, whichever way you, you know, skin the cat, so to speak, um, you know, you might have six months worth of income, which covers you for 12 months worth of expenses. That's fine. But I just find that um, having three to six months worth of income or 12 months worth of income is far better than having three to six months worth of expenses or even 12 months worth of expenses. Um, So the more you have, the more secure you are financially. Now, uh, again, COVID is a great example of how things can change overnight. If you didn't have any emergency funds and you lost your job or you were furloughed or something happened, then you could be in major trouble. So always top up your emergency fund as you use it and always get rid of any consumer debt pronto. So remember, there's the $1,000 emergency fund you should have anyway, but the three to six months worth of emergency fund or the 12 month worth of emergency fund I think you should not have that until you're debt free. Uh, that is consumer debt free, not mortgage or investment debt free. Consumer debt free, because if you've got a credit card which is you know taking away eighteen percent of interest per year, then it makes no sense for you to have an emergency fund covering for six months worth of expenses. Get rid of that credit card. I've had numerous people contact me. They have you know credit card debt of you know five ten thousand dollars, which is you know eighteen percent interest rate, but yet they've got. Money in the offset account in their mortgage. Um, now, the mortgage interest rate is going to be far less than the credit card interest rate. So, just take the money from the mortgage and just pay off the credit card. Maybe leave a little bit in the offset for emergency funds. It's fine, but but really, after a thousand dollars, just pay off the credit card debt. It makes absolutely no financial sense to have money in the offset account, earning you you know five six percent return when you're drowning in eighteen percent. Of interest in your credit card debt so and I've had you know very smart people do this so it's not just you know just because you have a degree in law or medicine or dentistry or whatever it is doesn't mean that you're immune to making some silly financial decisions now part of this emergency fund you need to take into account and I've discussed this extensively in episode 5 this is part of my 10 episode first series for you about some of the concepts of personal finance is insurance, a personal protection insurance. So you've got to have life insurance, you've got to have income protection insurance, Uh, you may want to consider trauma insurance, you may want to consider total and permanent disability insurance. I've discussed a lot about this topic um, and basically you need to take that into account when you're calculating your emergency fund. So for example, um, if you have 12 months worth of emergency fund then if you get sick and you've got income protection, that's fantastic. You may be happy to just live off your income protection and save that 12 months worth of emergency fund or maybe use some of that 12 months worth of emergency fund for the waiting period that you are invariably having to wait out for your income protection to be paid. Um, So remember, if you make a claim, it's not as if you're going to get paid that night. It takes a bit of process um, and they need to assess your claim to make sure that you're eligible to make sure you meet all the criteria and frankly insurance businesses they're there to make money they're not there to make you rich so let's face it if you're an insurance company um, your aim is to insure people but perhaps not pay people in full so and uh, a good lesson for that is travel insurance Um, a lot of people have just lost money on their travel insurance because of COVID, because when the WHO said it's a pandemic, all bets are off. They won't cover you for pandemics. But had you cancelled your cover, you know, just an hour before that announcement, yeah, your claim would have gone through. So, um, you know, yes, having insurance and personal protection insurance is very useful, but I think it's also very useful to have an emergency fund. So you need to take that into account in the concept of your financial health and how to measure your financial health. Number seven, independence ratio. Now, this is interesting. This is something that I've heard about, but I haven't actually understood until I did some research on it. Um, and I think this is probably the most relevant, um, to be honest. Again, it's not the best indicator, but it is probably the most relevant indicator. And it's a good indicator in my view. And essentially, it's a financial freedom calculator. Uh, it measures your financial health by calculating the income generated by your assets and the percentage of cost of living it would cover. In the event that you can't work so the higher the ratio the better so i'm going to use a simple example to work this out so bear with me and i'm going to use i know this is kind of dodgy but i'm going to use gross income because it just makes it a lot easier to explain it um, but you can work it out with net income if you'd like so assume that you earn a hundred thousand dollars pre-tax income every year that's your salary that's your wage and you save 20 percent of that income again i'm going to use gross so you're going to save 20 percent of the hundred thousand dollars and that's your pay-yourself money. I'm just doing it for simplicity purposes, so bear with me. You have an investment property with a rental income of about $15,000 as well. So that's the rent that you're getting from your investment property. And you also have about $300,000 in investments, which is in, let's say, in the stock portfolio, generating around 4% of income via dividends, which works out to be about $12,000 per year. So your side income or income generated by your assets is $15,000 rental income and $12,000 per year in share market dividend income. Now, I'm assuming you don't have any debt, right? Just make it very, very simple. So here are the numbers again. $100,000 of income, 20% you put aside, you save that. You have an investment property giving you $15,000 in rental income per year, and you've got a stock portfolio giving you 4% dividend, Worth about three hundred thousand dollars, so the dividend works out to be about twelve thousand dollars per year. So your total side income, in addition to your salary of a hundred thousand, is around twenty-eight thousand dollars of side income. Okay, so your total income becomes one hundred twenty-eight thousand dollars, which is pretty good. Now, if you were to stop working, remember you're earning hundred thousand dollars. But if you were to stop working, then you will need to replace, uh, sorry, replace this whole hundred thousand dollar income. So. That somehow, you've got to do that by not working. So how are you going to do that? You're going to do it via rental property income. You're going to do it by dividend income, etc. Okay, that is income generated from your assets that you own, where you don't actually trade time for money. When you go to work, you're trading your time for money. That is the worst possible income generation capacity. You want to be able to sleep and still make money. That is what dividends is. That is what passive income is. That is what rental property income is. That is what income that's non-earned is. So therefore, in this example, your assets are generating $28,000 in income and you need to replace $100,000 in income. Therefore, your independence ratio is 28%. Therefore, the higher the ratio, the better. So I want you to take that in. It's not a complex concept. I've just simplified it as much as I possibly can. Um, and I'm just going to put a caveat, what I've told you is a very conservative estimate. In in other words, that's a great situation to be in. If you're earning $100,000 and you're currently producing $28,000 in side income, that's a great situation, but if you stop working, for example, in retirement, you're probably not going to need to put aside an extra 20%. Um, you probably don't need to do that because you've done that for over 20, 30, 40 years to be able to give you that dividend income. So really, the way that I've explained this was very conservative, but let's use a realistic scenario, right? I've assumed you still set aside 20% of your income in the 100k salary that you're trying to match when you retire. Um, but technically, if you were to stop working and you're retired, you're probably not going to need to save that 20% of income. So your replacement income need only be 20% less than $100,000, which is 80K. You only need to replace 80K. And now, if you're generating $28,000 in side income, your current independence ratio becomes 28,000 divided by 80,000, which is actually 35%. In other words, you are 35% into providing for your retirement income, which is pretty good depending on your age. If you're 60, that's not a great ratio. If you're 30, that is a fantastic ratio. So, that's why I think the financial independence ratio is a great barometer in terms of where you are in your life, personal finance situation, and assessing your financial health. Hopefully, that clarifies it. That's probably my biggest take-home point from this podcast episode, to calculate your financial independence ratio. So, Again, if you're going to retire in 30 years and you want to earn $100,000 in retirement income, you have a look at what your financial independence ratio is now and have a look at how you're going to get to that $100,000 in side income in 30 years' time. So that's, I won't bore you to death with more about financial independence ratio. Now, the eighth way of assessing assessing your financial security is your income, and this is often considered when trying to borrow money, but income alone is not a great indicator. Many high-income earners like athletes, movie stars are broke by the time they finish their careers. So many high-income professionals, like doctors, are hilted in debt and struggling to survive due to their lifestyle creep, debt-to-income ratio being very, very high. But the aim here is, if you have a high income, you should save that money and invest it. Okay? So, if you have a high income... Applying the timeless principle of taking twenty percent of after tax income, putting it aside and investing it and reinvesting it, reinvesting the dividends and doing it for the long term, that's a timeless principle that you can use whether you're a McDonald's checkout operator or the McDonald's burger flipper, or whether you're a orthodontist earning, you know, a million dollars a year. That concept is applicable to everyone. Um, to get their financial affairs in order, so those are the eight ways that you can assess your financial health. Those are the eight ways to use as a barometer in order to make sure that what you 're doing is correct or in the right track. Um, and like I said you 're going to have good years and bad years in terms of your financial health, but overall the trajectory has to be your net worth has to keep going up and your net debt has to keep coming down and of course your happiness factor has to keep going up and again revisiting those issues we're doing this because we want choice in life we want financial independence we want financial security and we want peace of mind Um, that's the four main reasons why we're doing it so that's why my five principles that i've used in my life and tried to simplify as much as i possibly can that is pay yourself invest reinvest dividends long-term investing and automation is pretty self-explanatory, it can be utilised um, in any profession, it can be utilised if you're 16 years old, flipping burgers at Macca's, it just works, um, and of course that's just my opinion, um, and this is because it's my podcast, and therefore my opinion is the most important ha ha ha, so you know, if you, look at, if you look at what, I mean, I've tried to look at it from 50 years from now, when hopefully I'm still alive, but probably not, um, but you know fifty years from now, could you use these timeless principles and I would argue that you can, and I would argue that if you're listening in twenty seventy and this podcast is still live, I would argue that these principles are timeless and are probably can be used in twenty seventy as they possibly are used today. That's assuming the world doesn't end by then, which I don't think it will, but That's why I think getting those principles, behaviors downpacked early in life is really, really important and not waiting until you're a high-fledged lawyer or high-income earner or have assets. Not waiting till then because by that time you've lost opportunity of compounding, you've lost opportunity of learning, you've lost opportunity of automation, you've lost opportunity to set yourself up in the future. Because a lot of people ask me, is it actually worth doing all this now? I don't actually have any assets. i am actually got a net worth that's negative. I don't have much income. So why don't I just worry about this when I get a good job or when I have a high income or when I have some assets to worry about? And I think that's a very dangerous way to look at things. Um, I think you need to start worrying about it and learning about it today, even if you don't have a high net worth. Um, and I think if you look at the people that have high net worth today they've already got all this down packed earlier in their life and therefore they don't have to worry about it later in life. And uh, you know, people like Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, who have immense wealth, but they've already thought about all this younger in life. Um, and I think if you miss that opportunity, I think you've got a great risk of not actually learning it ever because learning something like this at the age of 35 or 45 or 55 is far more difficult than learning about it when you're 15, 20, 25. So that's about it for this episode. Um, and measuring you know, financial health and security is very important. There are a number of strategies and concepts which can be employed to do this, and I find a single strategy is not useful. So you need to use multiple strategies and formulas to measure your financial health because that's the best way to go. And just recapping the strategies, net worth, savings rate, debt-to-income ratio, credit scores, emergency funds, including insurance, independence ratio, and total income. Um, And let me just finish up this episode by this quote, which was very, very poignant by an American theologist, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, known as Reinhold. Um, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, but the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So when it comes to finances, you need to change what you can control. You need to manage what you can't control. And you must know the difference. So thanks for listening. Remember to like DevRaga Facebook page online. Um, Shout out to the questions and comments. And thank you, Anonymous, for today's question about super being included as part of your pay yourself money. And thank you for those that are suggesting topics. I am working on further topics, um, which I will get around to. Remember to share this channel with family and friends via castbox.fm, Spotify, Google Podcasts or devraga.com or you can just Google it Um, and remember always pay yourself first. Take that 20% of after-tax income and put it away and invest it for the long term. So once again, thank you very much for listening. This is Devraga Personal Finance episode 73 and as always, make sure you stay safe.